0: morning. <clears throat> glad to have you here this morning. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, as you heard from Pastor Greg, my name is Pastor Rusty. Um, brother Matt is off uh, with uh, Refuge City. If you are new today, um, there's uh, a good bit of things going on <laughs> um, between us and them that we would love to talk to you about. Um, we are considering a merge with them in the fall, um, so this is part of our uh, Cross pollinating as we begin to, to join our two churches together. Um, we're excited about that, and he's off with them today. Um, but it is my pleasure to, to welcome you here this morning. If you have your Bibles, please open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. I normally like to open with a question. All of the good public speaking books and sermons uh, say you have to have some kind of question, else, why else are you listening? To me this morning and uh, normally i like to follow that pattern because i am kind of an investigator in that sense but i think today um, the questions are going to come all on their own just from our text it's really easy today to to leap into this text today and go one of two ways and so if you are a visitor today um, we (laughs) do not typically follow holidays as far as sermons are concerned um, with the exception of uh, probably easter and christmas Um, That being said, this is going to turn into a Mother's Day sermon in about five minutes um, because it's going to be an all of us sermon. So um, I hope you'll join me today in this. The title of our sermon today is that the curse has been lifted. The curse has been lifted. Now, the idea of a curse is a very foreign concept to Uh, our culture, our church culture, our culture around us. The idea of curses brings with it the connotation of witches and demonic powers or old-timey Puritan life areas where they're crushing witches in Salem. Or it's taking us all the way back to the original aspect of curses, um, to the fall, which is I believe we will experience a good piece of that today. Uh, And then into the idea of Deuteronomy as Moses gets the law from uh, God at Mount Sinai. The idea of cursing is something that, until recent memory, was something that was a very common idea. And the idea of a curse today is just absolutely foreign and missing. And I hope today that you will see how this plays such a foundational part in our lives, uh, particularly when it comes to this idea of us living under authority, living uh, in a submissive way and being servants And doing that. So, the first thing I want you to see today is that we are all crushed under the curse. We're all crushed under the curse. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up in church, uh, for all the kids that are in here now, uh, it was really easy for me to find a way that the sermon didn't apply to me. Uh, much the same way that I handled horror movies, um, I was not okay with things that were scary. So if I'm watching the X Files with my dad as a tiny tot, and we can talk about the wisdom of that later, um, <laughs> the monster of the week only goes after women. I'm good. I can sleep tonight. I'm not one of those. Um, it only goes after uh, people who are older than 13. Um, I'm good tonight. I can sleep. I'm not one of those. Then when I turned 13, it's a different question. Um, But when it came to sermons, I would do the same thing as servants. Be subject to your masters with all respect. I'm out. Appreciate it. I'll see you here in about 40 minutes. Um, This doesn't apply to me, right? And so out the gate, when we think about we are all crushed, then how do we all fit in this passage? The idea of servants at the beginning, I just want to bring us all into the fold here. The servants is not a helpful term. Right? I love the ESV uh, for many, many, many reasons, but the idea of servants just does not communicate great for us, right? Why? Well, how many of you are servants? Yeah, yeah, okay. So that, along with curse, seems like an outdated piece. So how do we bring this in? Uh, the word that, that we see servants—a better term for that would be closer to employees. All right, how many of you are employees? yeah all right we're, we're, we're falling in line here right and it's a better way to think of it as employees the type of people that peter's addressing here are people that have skills and they're, they're not just skilled laborers i mean we're talking about like doctors physicians those types of people that have skills they simply though live in a home and in that particular case the home is a center of business right and so for for our thinking here um All of you, servants, you, employees, if you work under someone, right, be subject to your masters with all respect. And so to bring us all into the fold, this talks to all of us in some regard. You may be thinking, well, I'm not an employee, I'm an employer. Uh, You're still under someone else, right? And so when we think about the, the principles and concepts of Scripture, these things cover all of life. Last week, we talked about extensively the idea of everything being unto God, right? Everything. And so as we continue in this particular section, this is still all of us. So with that, let me give you one version of this sermon. I said it could go two ways. One would simply be, be submissive to your authorities, even if it's a little rough, because Jesus did that and showed you. He even died for you that you might follow his example and do good things. Suck it up, buttercup. Jesus had it worse, right? That's a a way of doing it. That's a way that I know a lot of people have done this passage. Is it faithful? It's it's not wrong. Is it faithful? It's not wrong. (laughs) Peter, though, gives us a, a pretty bitter pill at the beginning. By invoking two criteria for our submission and what this is supposed to look like. And right before we hit those, I want to remind us of what Pastor Matt said last week in regards to this, particularly in the in the with this S-word submission. Submission with grumbling is not holiness in any way, right? So we, we've got that from last week. Submission with grumbling is not holiness in any way. And so Peter gives us two criteria to help us. Uh, to, to, to fasten our submission to. One is be subject with all respect. Verse 18. With all respect. The second one is when mindful of God, right? I mean, it's easy to submit to good leaders. When we have the right color in the White House, when our bosses don't give us difficult projects or clients, when our pastors just love us and care for us, kids, when our parents don't make us clean our room or do our homework and they let us or hang out with our friends and particularly when they give us money to do said things it's easy when it's like that but the question is is can you submit at all (laughs) can you can you even submit at all to the unjust when you're mistreated when you're overlooked when you're used at work when you're manipulated i mean let me name it here let me help you when you're sinned against Can you submit then at all? We're not even talking with what attitude. Can you? Can you do that? And can you submit with all respect? I mean, come on, Peter. Why would I do that? Why on earth would I do that? There is nothing good in that. Peter has a pretty good why coming for us. We've got to answer that question of why. Like, why would I do that? Before we even get to can I, tell me why I should. And so Peter picks up this thread of the unjust and he develops it, calling it a a gracious thing. A gracious thing to endure sorrow while suffering unjustly. In verse 19, it's a gracious thing. When mindful of God, you endure sorrow while suffering unjustly. You know, all the time in the counseling room, we're uncovering ways that people are sinned against. They're legitimately sinned against. There's hurt that's happening in their lives. There are people that are, are, are at worst abusing them, at, at less worst using them in some fashion. They're being sinned against. It's legitimate hurt. And it's often easier to, be, to begin counseling by talking about the offenses of others before we get into your own sin, right? It feels like a, a little bit of a dirty one-two punch. Like, all right, yeah, they're, they're, I hear you. You are sinned against. We have to talk about you, we have to talk about you. So, how do you, how do you carefully, how do you, uh, with care, with kindness, with, with sobriety, come to a, a thing like this where you are being sinned against, and 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 we set it aside to deal with you. You see, when people come for counseling, they want problems solved. They don't want to be made sanctified. It is a huge challenge here, and that's what Peter's presenting to us. Pastor, you don't understand. They always do this to me. They always treat me like this. I don't want to sound insensitive, although my chair will probably be more empty after this. <laughs> what do you want me to do about it? What do you want me to do about it? I'm, in the spirit of today, I'm not your mommy. I'm not going to go down there with maternal wrath and mama bear them. What do you want me to do to your boss? And so the question is, is why is this such a common thing? Well, it's because... You've been sinned against. It's real hurt. There's real suffering. That's what makes it easy for me in that chair then to be empathetic. I've experienced a good deal of it myself. I I can see the hurt in your life. I know that it's real. But what is the disconnect? Why isn't it a grace-filled moment then? Why isn't it a grace-filled moment? Why is, is grace in your response to them and grace in your response to the hurt? If, if Peter's telling us that in that suffering, it's a gracious thing, then where is it? It's because we're not mindful of God. We're not mindful of God. Verse 19 is clear. <laughs> this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. You see, suffering, suffering is just a, a powerful powerful thing it, it reveals just so so much I, I very rarely have people come for counseling when they're not suffering right it seems to be what provokes it people don't come when it's sunshine and rainbows they come when it's raining and thundering when there's hurt And so the question is today I told you we would get to one that provokes it is that what do you want <laughs> what do you want Despite my hearing disability, I'm a pretty good listener. It's what I I do. And I hear hurt all the time. But I got to wonder every time I hear hurt, what you expect the solution is. What do you expect the solution is to that hurt? What would make it all better? I'm not against hearing hurt and just being a sounding board. I'm not against just... Being that person for you to come to and, and bring your pain. But what do you expect to happen? That, that's a big question. It's a big question. We want a fulfilled life, right? We want a fulfilled life. We want a life worth living. We want a life lived well. And what what happens is that we're asking in this room the same urgent questions that people have always asked. What constitutes a fulfilled life? What really makes life worth living? What would we most admire people for? What do you want them to talk about at your funeral? You see, believers and unbelievers. But unbelievers want to live well, right? You know, when we look at secular culture, we look at those that are not believers in Christ, and we say, oh, they're just chasing trash. That's not true. They're chasing goodness, just like we are. It's twisted, just like we are. They want the same things. They want not temporary stuff or tickling pleasures of base desires. They strive to live happily with spouse and children while practicing a vocation that they find fulfilling, and also a a vocation or a dream or a desire or a goal to contribute in some account to human welfare. They want their life to matter. One author said this in referring to the secular culture. He said, A way of putting our present condition is to say that many people are happy living for goals which are purely imminent. They live in a way that takes no account of the transcendent, and that's where the disconnect is that comes between us. Our culture lives in such a way that the eminent desires, those that are here and very much material and and able to be seen, are all that matters, whereas the Christians have been called to live for the transcendent. If you uh, were part of our Doctrine of God class, you know that God is both eminent, He is here, and He is transcendent. He is above all things. And so in our pursuit of the good life, and our pursuit of what is flourishing, and what makes a life matter, we are pursuing the same things that they are. But we see differently, right? We see differently. You see, in the secular age, cross-pressured as we are between doubt and belief, we can't know for certain, our culture says, if God exists. But if he does, then surely he wills our good, right? I made the potentially uh, suspect decision to let my children watch Evan Almighty with me last night. Um, We can talk about that afterwards. Uh, We talked (laughs) in that it's not going well for Evan, right? Noah, his family has just left and he's outside and everyone is against him, just like every movie ever. And the sprinkler comes on and (laughs) sprays him in the face, right? It's a kid's movie, I'm telling you. Sprays him in the face. And he goes, I know, I know. Everything you're doing is because you love me. You think you could love me a little less? I think we all find ourselves kind of asking that same question. If everything is, if God is there and he's good, and everything is supposed to work out for me, why does suffering look like this? Why is it so heavy? Why is it so hard to get to that happiness? It's crushing. We feel that pressure. You start to ask the question, you think you could love me a little bit less? It'd be easier. And I think that this idea betrays the real problem. Secularism is not the problem out there. Instead, every Sunday morning, it is secular people filling our pews. They attest to loving God, but they accept no final goals beyond human flourishing or any allegiance to anything else beyond this flourishing. They pray for God's kingdom to come, and imagine the arrival and coming of their own happiness. In the secular age, God becomes the guarantor of our best life now. I see, our suffering shows that we are only focused on the here and now, the imminent. It exposes us for secularness. It shows that our greatest hopes and dreams are simply about us having a good, flourishing. Life. And so when I say God's kingdom come, I really mean it to be while I am God, my kingdom come. And so Peter calls us to be mindful of God, not God himself, right? See, so our suffering hurts us because we think that we are God. We are strong enough, powerful enough, and in control enough to take care of our situation. He calls us to be mindful of God. But you're asking the question, how? How, Pastor Ross? I'm really hurt. I'm really suffering. How can I do it with grace? It it would be a tragedy to simply leave it at that, wouldn't it? You have your example and Jesus. Just do it. That's not enough. That doesn't answer the question. And there's a real temptation to that point, even as we continue reading. Peter gives the examples of verse 20 with the word endure. Just just do it, right? Endure. There's a temptation that pushes us that way. Now, to be fair, enduring is what you're going to have to do. But our temptation is to read it as a stoic endure. It's not that. It's not that. We are, as James says, to count it all joy. Count these things all joy. So how? Well, there's a real gut check coming here, right? That we have to do first involving that H word, humility. Verse 20 says that when we sin, expect consequences. Expect consequences. This is a difficult turn for a lot of us to make. I mean, this makes it hard for me even to be a gracious parent. I warned you three times, don't do that. You did it. That's what happens. I gave you an example, you didn't follow it. Do you see daddy walking into the table? No. It makes me a really ungracious parent, right, to fall into this trap. I want to just say, quit being so dumb, dummy, right? But that's, that's what Peter's telling us. It's not a gracious thing when you suffer for your sin, right? You don't get to, to bring on accolades saying, "Yeah, yeah, I paid all my taxes. That's what you do. You, you don't bring on accolades for paying the penalty for your crime. You don't commit the crime. Now, there's a pretty big spiral that we can fall into here, particularly if I recognize that I'm a sinner with a wicked heart. I mean, in that particular case, all of life is sin for me. And so what happens? I deserve everything that I get. The law becomes oppressive. I can't get away from sin, Paul says. And if I can't get away, then all I'll ever suffer from is the due consequences of it. That is a deep spiral. How crushing is that? How right is that? You see, that is the spiral that all mankind is in. Your neighbor, your brother, your boss, your sweet mother, maybe even you. That is the case for all of us. All right, see how I'm doing. We're sinned against, experiencing real hurt and suffering. I still haven't answered how to respond to that in grace. Uh, we're experiencing it not just from others, but at our own hand. I haven't answered how to find hope in that and, and get out of that spiral. So let's continue, right, and see what, what Peter has for us. See, he continues, and we experience suffering even when doing good. <laughs> even when doing good. Peter, Brother. Have you ever considered a career as a fisher fish, right? Because this fisherman thing is not really working out well for you. You can consider me not hooked, all right? (laughs) If you do good and suffer for it, if you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Peter, you've said gracious twice, and I just don't get it. (laughs) He continues, right? For to this you have what? been called Peter, full stop just, just quit, alright just stop as, as a pastor, as a, as a youth pastor before particularly, it was my distinct privilege for people to come to me and ask what is God calling me to do it was also my distinct pleasure to respond with First Peter 2.21 you shouldn't ask me that question alright, you shouldn't ask me that question, what does it have for us this is to what you are called To suffer. So do I suffer at Ohio State or Wright State? To suffer. This is what you are called to. If you're wondering what the will of God is for your life, it's 1 Peter 2.21. If you're wondering how you should live day to day in your family, 1 Peter 2.21. What it means to be a parent, 1 Peter 2.21. What it means to be a member of a church, 1 Peter 2.21. This is what everything means. When we talked last week about how everything relates to God, this is what we're talking about. When I'm sitting down with our youth DNA leaders last week in training, I have to open up with the, with the warning to them. This is going to cost you something. Because it's going to cost your students that you're leading something. The book that you're reading together says, this changes Everything. We cannot separate the secular from the sacred in our lives. See, this is a very real problem in our world and in our churches. When we think about it from the outside perspective, we've got to think about what this this call to suffering means. For modern seculars. for those that are outside of our walls, there is the sense that Christianity has made exaggerated moral demands. We hear that all the time which cannot but end up mutilating us, they say. It leads us to despise and neglect the ordinary fulfillment, and to neglect, to, to do away with the happiness that is just within our reach. It asks us to despise our families, Luke 14. It commends heavenly treasure over earthly accumulation, Matthew 6. It forbids sexual license, Hebrews 13. And so according to the critique, Christianity imposes a cruel and unnecessary asceticism, forcing us to repress desire and defending the primacy of individual freedom, the heartbeat of modern exclusive humanism. We have to reckon with that. I'm sitting in a room full of pastors last Thursday, and we're talking about this book, this question. Because how do we go through life suffering And tell our friends and family that Jesus loves them, that there's a better way, that they should deny themselves and join you in suffering, that the happiness that they are just in reach of of grasping is actually death. So come with me, pick up your cross and, well, die. We cannot ignore that there's a cross at the center of our story. We cannot ignore the fact that there is a cross. At the center of our story that cross does not say flourishing I don't care if it's in 14 karat gold around your neck or if it's adorned with flowers on your wall it means death humiliating torturous agonizing death and it is square in the middle of our story so why is your way better Why is your way better? Why would I want to respect my authorities when they sin against me, use me, disrespect me? Why would I want to suffer for breaking a law of God that isn't even good for me? It tells me that my desires are wrong. Why would I want to suffer for doing good things? So the question you have is, how do you answer that? How do you answer that? We answer that question with 1 Peter 2.21 To this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. This verse is a, is a very big deal. It unlocks how we are supposed to answer these three questions of grace in every major way. The problem is it also unlocks why many of us are lost in suffering without this grace that Peter's talking about and feeling like we have no way out. See, there's a tiny pair of words here that we cannot miss. For you. For you. Let me read it again for you without for you, all right? For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Does it mean something different? Yeah. A lot. (laughs) A lot different. I'm willing to wager, we're not supposed to bet, I think as pastors or as Christians or something like that, but in every case, in every case that we are lost in our suffering, whether we've been sinned against it's a result of our own sin, or it's because we can't see the grace in suffering for good. It is because we're reading it that way. Why then do I suffer? Well, to earn my righteousness. He suffered, now I join him in suffering to earn my righteousness, because I am God. This is my kingdom that's coming. They are hindering it, and I am just following Jesus' example. I've been called because Christ also suffered, leaving me an example to suffer so that I might follow in His steps of suffering. To what end? For Him, it was to be glorified. And on our case, if it's not for us that He suffered, then we are doing it so that we might be glorified. Let me help you answer this question. Get off the cross. It's not yours anymore. It is not your cross anymore. The curse has been lifted. The curse has been lifted. We are crushed by the sin against us in the world, by the sin that is in our own hearts, that is crushing us. And then even when we do good, we are expected to suffer. That is crushing. It is part of the curse. He suffered for you the curse has been lifted it's not your cross anymore the key to christianity is the cross it is substitutionary atonement christian you have to hold this tightly before you matters you don't look at jesus on the cross and say nice let me help you or or thanks jesus Come now, I'll finish the rest, right? That sounds absurd to us, blasphemous even. But we do that all the time. Thanks for getting it started, Jesus. I will finish. Thank you for saving me. I'll walk the rest of my life in good works and earn it. Come down off the cross, Jesus. It's mine. You can't. You can't drink the cup of wrath due for your sin. You can't. You can't consume it. It will consume you. Your body cannot bear the weight of the penalty due against you. You can't carry it. It will break you. He did it for you. Skip ahead to verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body On the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Of of all of this text, here is an explicit statement of the heart of the gospel. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. The fact that Christ bore his sins means that God the Father counted our sins against Christ, and in a way that is not fully understood by us. He laid on Him the iniquity of us all, Isaiah 53, 6. The Father thought of our sins as belonging to Christ. You catch that? That's what we're talking about with substitutionary atonement. He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin. 2 Corinthians five twenty one, And He then punished Him with that anger against sin, separation from God and his consequent death, which we deserved. It's in this way that Christ was a substitute for his people, one who stood in their place. He suffered for you. That is the key, right? That is the key here. But I think, as much as I want to, that is not the main emphasis here. If I'm going to be a faithful expositor, that's not the, the main emphasis. It is the key, but it's not the main emphasis. The example in suffering is the main emphasis of Peter because that's what he's spending most of the time explaining. In fact, this, this, this theme of the key of the substitutionary atonement is going to be developed more and picked up several times before we finish First Peter. So I'll, I'll save it for then. What we can explore right now is why Peter uses this key here. Imagine the the text here without verse 21, without verse 24. Then it becomes that sermon that I talked about at the beginning. Suck it up. It was worse for him. What are you complaining about? Following his footsteps. That's a lock, a problem, without a key. The key is that he did it for us so that we might be following in his example, right? Right? He did it for you. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So why is he using that here? There's a word that we've read a few times. Tree. Why tree? In his body on the tree. Let me be clear, all right? Peter could have said cross. Earlier when we talk about the the translation idea of servants to employees, like that, it's just a matter of understanding here. For us... (laughs) The word that he used is tree, not cross. He did that on purpose, right? Why? Deuteronomy 21:22. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Peter's a good Jew. He's been quoting, and he's going to continue to quote Isaiah 53 for us. This is coming from Deuteronomy. The idea of the tree is a very specific piece because it involves and invokes the idea of the curse. This curse of death that comes as a result of sin at the fall and as a result of failing the law. And so for us, when we read this passage, it is for you that he was hung on the tree. He was cursed. He took the curse for us. The curse has been lifted. You see, he suffered not only to the point of death, but to death as one accursed. Peter's well aware of the law's curse upon one who died as a criminal on the tree. And to Pharisees like Saul, before his conversion, Christ's death on the cross Refuted any claim to messiahship that Jesus made. The Messiah could not die as one accursed of God. The astonishing prophecy of Isaiah shows the very opposite. Only the one who becomes a curse for us can be the true Messiah. For his accursed death in our place, paid the price of sin. And Peter had proclaimed to the Sanhedrin the horror. Of their offense in killing Jesus. We got to explore that together as we walked through Acts last year or the year before. Walking through his sermons. Seeing him recount the gospel. Recognizing that the Sanhedrin played into his horror of their offense in killing Jesus. Hanging him on a tree. This isn't new language for Peter. Yet the wicked hands of the men had fulfilled the counsel and will of God. God raised up Jesus and by his death brought forgiveness of sins to all who trust in him. The curse has been lifted. So we have to talk about, all right, the curse is lifted, but how do I actually get the idea of grace and suffering? How do I get there? You may be familiar with uh, Jim Elliott, I believe his wife Elizabeth Elliott writes in her book, A Path Through Suffering, does our faith rest in having our prayers answered as we think they should be answered? Or does it rest on that mighty love that went down into death for us? We can't really tell where it rests, can we? Until we're in real trouble. So, how do you suffer graciously? You see that he suffered for you. How do you get the good life? How do you flourish? You're not cursed anymore. Under the curse, there is no good life. (coughs) Under the curse, all men's ways lead to death. That's not flourishing. How do you truly live? You live for his glory. How do you count it all joy and suffering and in trials with pain and scorn at every turn? Here it is. You've been healed. The curse has been lifted and you've been healed. The end of verse 24. By his wounds you have been healed. I know. It's still a struggle. It's still a struggle. The paradox of faith is that you can stand there across from me, bleeding from the wounds of the world's evil and your own evil, and I can say to you, You're healed. One writer puts it this way: says, Perhaps we might imagine the life of faith standing on the knife edge of the Lord's Prayer salutation. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What do they mean? God is a good Father, right? And as Calvin wrote, this frees us from all mistrust. If God is a good Father, then we can trust Him, right? But He is also holy. There's inscrutability to His ways. And He does what pleases Him. Should we not marvel that what has stunningly pleased God is his own suffering and degradation, the emptying of himself in order to fill salvation's cup. See, the apparent contradiction reveals the heart of Peter's message. That which is to be feared is not the wrath of men, but the wrath of God. That which is to be desired is not the passing comforts of the world, but the blessing of God's eternal inheritance this is not just a matter of suffering now and glory to come the promised blessing is already the possession of believers in christ they now taste the joy of heaven for they taste the lord's grace chapter 2 verse 3 they know jesus the great physician Peter knew well the healing power of Christ. As an apostle himself, he had power to declare, Jesus Christ, heal you. And in hope of the resurrection, Peter could promise now the final healing of all the people of God. But here, Peter speaks of healing, not by the hands of Jesus, but by the wounds of Jesus. Christ's wounds heal suffering at its root, the curse of sin, the curse of sin. Not only do they plead the sinner's case and judgment, they transform his present suffering. No longer is it the bitter legacy of unrighteousness it has become fellowship in the steps of Jesus. The pain that remains for the Christian is not the penalty of sin. Uh, do you hear that? The pain that remains for the Christian is not the penalty of sin. Christ has suffered that in His place. The pain that remains is Christ's calling to follow in His steps, sharing His reproach. So when sin against me and it hurts, that pain that I feel is not the penalty of sin. Christian, (laughs) hear that first. Christian, when you sin and experience suffering, it's not the penalty for your sin. When you do good, Christian, and experience suffering, it's not the penalty for your sin your penalty has been paid. Forget it daily. The penalty for my sin is paid. When it comes to my own sin and the consequences that I experience from my sin, that suffering is not the penalty for that sin. It is sanctifying grace. That's why we can count it joy. That's why it's a gracious thing to endure it, because its fruit is a sanctified believer. When I am most walking in the Spirit, I don't make the same mistake twice. I've been sanctified from it the first time. That's grace when I experience suffering from the people that sin against me, if they, at judgment, are a believer, that sin is paid for. Praise God! It is the flesh in us that says, no, still punish them, they hurt me. Jesus tells us to trust the just, the justifier, the one who is righteous and will heal all of those things who will pay men back for what they deserve and our desire should be that all men come to christ that all sin be paid for in christ so that all men might glorify christ we don't have to look out for ourselves when we're sinned against it's grace how is it grace when we get hurt by others who do you lean into you might come to me i ain't gonna let you lean on me That's what Jesus is for. He suffered for you. When you're hurt, where do you run? To the life giver. That's grace. If all you have is the things that you want, when are you going to go to God? If suffering is not in our life, we don't know who we're going to turn to. But when we are in suffering, we get to see Christ in all of his splendor and all of his glory as the one who cares for us and as the one who laid his life down for us and that is the key for Peter here when we can look to the example verse 21 of Christ we can see even further when Jesus takes up his cross he lays it down right in a mysterious way he's laying down his freedom To be clear, the author of Hebrews insists that Jesus did not go to the cross against his own will, right? He says, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And yet we have the scene of a kneeling, weeping, pleading Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, where in a dramatic reversal of humanity's first garden experience, his first act of self-sovereignty, God refused autonomy and chose surrender instead emptying himself of prerogative and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Our ethic is not autonomous freedom, it's obedient love. One central component of Christian revelation is that God not only wills our good, a good which includes human flourishing, but he was willing to go to extraordinary lengths to ensure this in the becoming human and the suffering Of his son, like Jesus, we are free to deprive ourselves so that another might flourish. And so, what's what's this example that we have? Verse twenty-two: He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. That's from Isaiah fifty-three. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But continued entrusting himself to him who, what? Judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and, what? Live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Once before, crushed. There's no flourishing in death. Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in our trespasses. Dead. Following what? The course of the world, right? And our culture tells us that happiness is just within reach. If I can just have the freedom to take it. If I can just make this one choice to grab it happiness is within my grasp and we say no that is death and you are already dead so how can we call them to the cross because at the cross he suffered for you he took your sin that's not all of substitutionary There's the giving back. He takes our sin. We receive righteousness. We receive righteousness and live to righteousness. Righteousness is flourishing. That is the very definition of it. We are so satisfied with common grace, the good things that God gives all of His people, the imminent and He calls us to the transcendent. He gives us His, God's, righteousness. That is flourishing. Peter has come a long, long way. We spent our Easter season in the Gospel of Mark. And it was not long ago that we encountered this passage. in Mark 8, 31-33. And He, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again and he said this plainly (laughs) and peter peter took him aside and began to rebuke him but turning and seeing his disciples he rebuked peter and said get behind me satan for you are not setting your mind on the things of god but on the things of man i think peter i think peter gets it now I think he got it. When at the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus shows back up. And after having denied Jesus three times, after having fell asleep in the garden when he was supposed to be on watch, after trying to hinder Jesus, rebuking Jesus for the idea of suffering, he's restored three times over. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. And So Peter feeds the sheep in Jerusalem. He writes this book for us. And he says, by his wounds you've been healed. You were straying like sheep. Peter knows what it's like to stray like a sheep. You were straying like sheep. Peter, feed my sheep. But have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter calls him the shepherd. Why? Peter, feed my sheep. The overseer, the watchtaker of your souls. Now listen, if you are a member here at Renovation, I am your shepherd and overseer, and I have to give an account for your soul. Hebrews 13, 17. Yet, (laughs) the oversight of the chief shepherd has majestic breadth and depth that I will never come close to. It goes far beyond the care of any under-shepherd. The Lord, who knows the secrets of our hearts, watches over our souls. And so Jesus was the overseer of Peter's soul, warning him, calling him to watch and pray, praying for him that his faith should not fail, and searching his heart in order to restore him to his calling. Peter, feed my sheep. We can suffer well. It's a gracious thing. You see the grace in suffering? Can you see joy in it? When we suffer, we see that these wounds that we temporarily feel and experience, and they are temporary, have been healed by His wounds the root issue that consumes us all, the reason that you're no longer at the bottom of that spiral of Romans chapter 7, that bottom of the spiral of all my life is sin is because the curse has been lifted and you now experience freedom to not sin. You are indwelled by the Spirit and the Spirit is at work inside of you, molding you, and shaping you into the very image of Jesus Christ. And so if you want to look like Jesus Christ, you partake with Him in His sufferings. And one day, we will be what? Exalted with Him. While He is seated at the right hand of the Father, we have been joined with Him in Ephesians 1 and 2. That's the grace of suffering. That's why when you're sinned against when you succumb to your own flesh and even when you do good and suffer for it you can rest in grace he has suffered for you I'm going go ahead and call the band and the communion elements forward we're getting ready to take communion hey, communion for us is, is a regular ongoing thing It's something that Jesus calls us to do, to remember him. But in light of today, I want you to see how this is part of everything. The idea that everything relates to God. The idea that this changes everything. These elements that we're getting ready to partake of is the blood and body of Christ. What does he say about it? This is the new covenant of my blood. If you want to experience Grace and suffering, this is the new covenant. That cup that you cannot drink. He drinks every drop of the wrath of God. He gives us his blood, not wrath. The body that was broken for us, that would break us, it would consume us, is given that we might remember. We don't take communion lightly. If you're not a member here, but you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you've repented of sins and are living currently in repentance, we want to invite you to partake with us. We, we practice open communion. However, if you are living in a state of sin where you are unrepentant, if you partake of these elements, believer, you're drinking that judgment. Paul warns us in Corinthians that when we partake in an unworthy manner, that is, in a a state of unrepentant sin, we are basically treating, uh, he is basically treating us as an unbeliever. We are drinking that wrath on ourselves. But if you are repentant, please partake with us. Remember, this is the new covenant in his blood. Meant to remind us weekly that we should daily Count it all joy, brothers. Let's pray together. And Come forward when you are prepared. Father God, we thank you so much. Thank you so much for your sacrifice, for your gift of grace to us. Father, as we continually feel the oppression of suffering in our lives, It is so easy for us to lose sight of the cross, of that cross that demands something, that tree that says that we are cursed. Father, that curse is no longer here. That temptation to believe that we are still locked into sin is a lie. We've been freed. We've been made alive together with Christ, freed from the curse. The curse has been lifted. We no longer are full of sin, Father. You've given us the righteousness of your Son. The the reason you hear me, the reason that you you hear us, the reason that you can even look upon us is because of the righteousness of your Son. So, Father, it's by faith. (laughs) Faith daily. That we look to the cup, that we look to the bread, and we see blood poured out for us, a body broken for us. Because it pleased you to crush your son. It pleased you to suffer on our behalf. Father, you are nothing but good. And so Father, today I pray that we would see the goodness of that. And Father, we, not only would we see it, but we can literally taste it right now. Father, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.